following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Sorry I'm a few minutes late tonight. I, um, uh, I was occupied. Uh, my wife had planned for us to uh, watch the new Emma adaptation together. Uh, and we were interrupted in the middle and then it was like almost over and I'm like, I gotta go to class, but we couldn't like stop like right before the proposal scene. So I, uh, finished watching the Emma adaptation and that's why I'm late. Um, yeah, this is the new one. Uh, Jennifer, I, I, we hadn't seen it yet. Um, the, what was it? Was it this year? Last year? Anyway. The recent one, entirely splendid one, the nosebleed one. Um, anyway, it was um, I, I I liked it actually. I thought it was funny. I didn't think it did a great job. Um, I've never seen any adaptation that really captures Emma. Uh, I think it seems to be the most elusive story and character of Jane Austen's, uh, like elusive to uh, elusive, I mean, uh, to uh, adaptations. Uh, but it, I I found it hilarious actually. I was laughing. Many times. Um, but um, anyway, so, so sorry. It's not what you came to hear about tonight. Um, anyhow, uh, welcome. Welcome. Just a couple quick announcements before we begin. Uh, first of all, awesome to see so many of you at MythMoot this past weekend. Uh, we had a wonderful time at MythMoot, and I hope that you guys uh, you know, be able to join us again uh, for another Moot sometime soon. We're going to be doing... Um, we're going to be doing, uh, you know, more digital moots uh, in the future, uh, at least until uh, travel calms down nationwide. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, so there will certainly be some other opportunities for those of you who weren't with us uh, this past weekend. But it certainly was a very remarkable uh, time uh, and um and for those of you who didn't see it, who were there, the uh, archive recordings just came out. So uh, that was cool. Anyway, all right. Um, that was uh, that was awesome. Um, two, that wasn't one of my announcements, though. Two quick announcements. Uh, one is uh, just a quick, uh, where is it? Here it is. A quick Signum Path announcement. Uh, so Signum Path, uh, we're sort of... Well, not shifting exactly, but uh, we've had we, we are completing this month in August our uh, third month of our program. We started in June, uh, so this is our third month of the program. And in these first three months, we have gone through each of our badges uh, one time each. You know, for the whole uh, for the whole set. In the fall, therefore, and starting in September, uh, we're kind of starting again. We're shifting a little bit. Uh, we're kind of focusing in for the fall on the two badges that have been most popular, uh, which are the uh, the writing badge and the verbal communications badge. And uh, we are wanting... So one of the things that's happening this week, actually, one of them happened today, but one of them is still happening tomorrow. Uh, and that is we're offering uh, two free mini courses, uh, just a kind, of, a kind of a sneak preview for people who want to understand better. Uh, we know the path is a brand new thing to understand better. Like, what are these courses? What kinds of things do you talk about? How does it work? Um, so we have a free mini course. We did the one today. Uh, I think, the, yeah, the nuts and bolts one was today. That's from one of our writing classes. But tomorrow, Thursday, August 13th, uh, is our two-way communications mini course. Um, so that's going to be 11 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday tomorrow. Uh, so you're welcome to join that. If you uh, if you go here, I will uh, copy the uh, 
the link there uh, into the chat so that you can all see that. Uh, and there's a link to it on our uh, uh, homepage and stuff as well, but just so that you can see that. And you can go here and you can register uh, right here from the page. Um, again, the mini course is entirely free. You'll get something out of it. And uh, also people who attend will get a, uh, a discount for upcoming registration. So again, if you've been thinking about the possibility of registering for a PATH class, now's a, now's a really great time. Uh, so just wanted to make sure to share that with you. The other thing, and we announced this at MythMoot this past weekend, we have finally uh, gone ahead and opened an online Signum shop. Um, I was uh, just watching with my kids um, last night, actually, uh, the first episode of Doctor Who, the new Who, season two, uh, when, you know, he's in the hospital in New New York and, and he keeps saying, like, you, know, you're, you're, you ought to have a shop. Uh, I was thinking about this. Um, anyway, we finally opened our online shop uh, and you can uh, uh, go here. Our shop, is on, our shop is on Redbubble. I'll put the link to that as well. Um, and uh, there we go. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty flexible. So we have lots of fun patterns. Of course, you can get Signum and Mythgard stuff, but we have a bunch of other fun designs uh, that you can uh, go through. Um, some of them are uh, references, uh, sort of inside jokes to uh, uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, this, I think, is for... Uh, my money, one of the highest geekery uh, designs that we have. Uh, it's a, uh, a Green Dragon pub sign with the slogan below, <clears throat> Great is our middle name, uh, which is, a, which is a, a pretty high level piece of Tolkien geekery, I think. Um, but anyway, the way that the store works is pretty cool because you click, on e you click through on each one of, on any one uh, of these designs and you can then choose what thing you want it printed on, right? So like you're like, oh, hey, I've always wanted a Balrogs don't have wings, uh, whatever I want, right? So you can go through and you can get it on a face mask. You can get it on shirts of like lots of different styles and kinds. You can get it on stickers and uh, uh, iPad skins and iPhone cases and uh, tapestries and coasters and shower curtains and all kinds of things. Mugs, bags, uh, water bottles, an apron, all kinds of things. Uh, and, and, and this is for every single one of the designs. So you go through, you choose the design, and then you go through and you choose the item. Um, and it's pretty cool. I mean, it works really well. Um, I have, uh, I've been using, I got one of the travel mugs uh, from our, uh, with our MythMoot logo on. Um, and I've been using that all week long uh, during MythMoot. Uh, and so that's been, uh, uh, I'm really pleased actually by the quality of these things. Um, so uh, kind of excited. Uh, I, I ordered a Balrogs Don't Have Wings t-shirt, which I'm looking forward to wearing. Um, uh, now, uh, George, yes. Uh, so I don't know about South Africa specifically, but one of the reasons that we chose Redbubble is that they have a lot of international um, uh, shipping options. Uh, that is, they have a lot of locations internationally so that you, you don't have to get it shipped across the ocean to get to you. Um, so in general, we've had people from several continents already ordering uh, off of the site here, and it seems to be working well and is not ridiculous shipping. So... You'll have to let us know if South Africa works out, but I think it should be um, uh, it should be it should be good. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, sorry, Stephen. I'm uh, I'm 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 not gonna I'm 
I'm not going to go along with our creating a uh, Bob is a man design. I'm just, I'm just not like Bob is a hobbit. I'm sorry. Like I'm getting a Bob is a hobbit thing. And, um, uh, and yeah, besides which Bob is a man, like, you know, you put, wear that on a shirt and people are really going to look at you funny. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, oh yeah, Francis, absolutely. This was a suggestion that, uh, 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 I forget who made it. Um, but somebody made this suggestion in one of our discussions at MythMoot, uh, that we really need, cause one of the things that you, one of the, um, items that you can get the design put on is a coin purse. Uh, and so now we really want to have a coin purse that says, ear, who are you? Um, uh, you know, a talking coin purse. So yeah, I think we kind of, um, we kind of need to have that. I agree. So that's, um, I, I think that's likely to be coming. I would also say anyone who has other suggestions or ideas, uh, for designs you would like to see in our shop, we'd be happy to, uh, uh, do that. Um, uh, totally ordering the cauldron of story uh, design on an apron, you see, uh, to wear in the kitchen. Excited about that. Okay. Anyway, so those are the two things that I wanted to announce. Don't forget the path stuff coming up, but again, immediately tomorrow, uh, our mini course, and then uh, our new shop, uh, which has opened up here uh, on Redbubble. Uh, and you can see that we have a link on our the Signum University homepage uh, that'll bring you to that as well. All right, let us plunge back into uh, call tonight into and out of the darkness uh, because I found that pivot really interesting. Uh, focusing, of course, as we're going to focus on the darkening of Valinor uh, and the last stages of the early Quentin narrative, you know, sort of the first half of the Quentin narrative uh, that Christopher was covering uh, in Morgoth's Ring. Uh, and then, of course, segueing to the Athrobeth. I'm hoping to get to the Athrobeth today. Uh, and, uh, of course, in the Athrobeth, we'll be learning about coming out of the darkness, right? So uh, that is going to be very interesting. I can't wait. Excited to get to the Athrobeth tonight. But I don't want to skip on Goliant because that's really fun, too. So we were just looking at... Oh, and I should, of course, apologize for my rather abrupt departure uh, in the middle of a sentence. Um uh, last time, uh, here's what happened. So I was, um, I just like randomly crashed, like my, the program randomly crashed. And then I tried to start it back up again. And then, uh, as soon as I tried to start it back up again, my entire system crashed. And at that point I went all Aragorn on it and was like, I shall take this aside because <laughs> I had been many meaning to stop anyway. If you remember, I had just been like, well, OK, I should stop. But let's do one more thing. And then like it all went down. Um, so I just decided to um, to let it go. Um, but, um, yeah, I agree, Stephen, that uh, uh, not, you know, uh, Ungoliant is not universally viewed as fun. Uh, by everyone who met her. Uh, agreed. But um, anyhow, <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, sorry for the abrupt end. I'll try to, I don't even remember. I think, was I reading? I don't know. I'm just going to start again on this slide because this is where we were. And uh, then we'll, we'll be, <laughs> we'll be back into things. Um, and what we were looking at in the new narrative here um, is what I think is a very interesting moment and a very revealing moment uh, from Tolkien in the narrative progress of the Silmarillion. We had already seen, just a brief recap, we had already seen how in the annals <clears throat> the narrative was getting out of hand, right? It was carrying him away. 
Uh, and we were getting all this dialogue and all this really detailed stuff, which didn't sound like annals entries at all, right? Um, hardly sounded like the tale of years anymore. And indeed, as we were noticing along the way, the the narrative in those revised sections of the Annals of Amon that we read earlier on in Morgoth's Ring is where the majority of the prose text from that those portions of the Silmarillion, especially the ones dealing with the darkening of Valinor and all that stuff, um, were, are drawn from. Um, here, then, what he's doing when he's coming to these parts of the Quintus Silmarillion in his revision of that is taking the stuff from the annals, but we can see him now sort of consciously uh, working to develop this, and we can see the additional things. There's more here. All of the, I, I, pretty much every passage that I'm going to be looking at here, uh, you know, for the whole first half at least of class, um, are going to be passage. Pa- Passages which contain more than is in the published Silmarillion, um, which, again, mostly drawn from the annals earlier on. And he's he's adding to that now, though those these aren't the passages, of course, that Christopher chose uh, to put um, um, uh, to put in the uh, uh, in the published Silmarillion. But now upon the mountaintop, dark and goliante lay for a while she rested. And with eyes faint from labor, she saw the glimmer of the stars in the dome of Varda and the radiance of Valmar far away. Slowly, her eyes wakened and took fire, and her lust increased until it overcame her fear. She began in stealth to creep down into the blessed realm. Still in the dark depths, Melkor stood, gnawing his mind between evil hope and doubt. But when he had stood, revolving his chances, as long as his urgency allowed, he turned away and went down to the shore. There he cursed the sea, saying, Slime of Olmo, I will conquer thee yet, shrivel thee to a stinking ooze. Yea, ere long Olmo and Ose shall wither, and Uinen crawl as a mudworm at my feet. With that suddenly he passed from Avathar and went to do his will. Arthur, you want Slime of Olmo on a mug? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. This is, there are many interesting details, of course, in this passage that are really fascinating, but let's make sure we acknowledge the really big thing first, right? He's changed the plot here in a very significant way. Melkor and Ungoliant don't go into the Blessed Realm together. Right. We saw in the last slide that we completed before the curtain was so rudely drawn upon the last class, um, uh, we saw that was the one where he was luring Ungoliant out with the two green gems that he brought to her from Formanos. Um, and we find now that he is not merely uh, enticing her to come along with him uh, and back him up. On his attack of Valmar, he's sending her into Valmar and staying on the beach while she does. Right. Um, She becomes his agent here. Um, Yeah. Um, Now let's look at some of the details. The very... There's a moment that corresponds to this, of course, in this in the slightly older text, in the published Silmarillion text, right? And that is when Morgoth or Melkor still 
and Ungoliant come to that highest point and look down together. And then Morgoth laughs and he leaps down and Ungoliant follows him, right? Um, but that moment of transition, that moment when they pause and kind of look out over things before they... is the parallel moment here, right? But notice the extra drama of this, right? We know that Ungoliante has both fear and desire of the light, right? She is afraid of the Valar, and yet she hungers for the light of Valinor. Um, and we can see the struggle within her, right? Um, with eyes faint from labor, she saw the glimmer of the stars in the dome of Varda and the radiance of Valmar far away. Slowly her eyes wakened and took fire, and her lust increased until it overcame her fear. She began in stealth to creep down into the blessed realm. Um, first of all, that sentence, she began in stealth to creep down into the blessed realm. Um, that's really eerie, I think. Um, and gives the whole thing a very different attitude. David Urbach, I agree that Ungoliant feels much weaker in this version. Um, yeah, yeah. And remember, she was almost dead. Uh, she was almost dead. Like, he had to give her the gems, not just to bribe her, but to strengthen her, right? I mean, she was weak with starvation, essentially, light starvation. Um, she had almost... We get a kind of sneak preview of how she's going to devour herself, right? Uh, she was, like, most of the way down that road already when Morgoth finds her here. And, of course, that's one of the things that he rebukes her with, right? Calls her a fool um, uh, for separating from him and from defi for defying him. And, uh, and, and you know, there's, there's an element of, see, look what's come of you, right? You know, on your own, having rejected me and tried to go apart on your own. Um, yeah, yeah. And absolutely, Chris, you can see some very direct parallels with Gollum uh, in this depiction. I think that th this depiction of Ungoliant owes a lot to Gollum. Definitely. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's interesting. Her stealth, th this is a, this is a, an interesting reconception of this, but the other thing that I would draw your attention to, and this has been something I've been interested from the beginning of this book is how the narrative itself is developing. Like not just what details are being told, but the style, like the kind of narrative that this is, right? And Ungoliant here is being given a kind of internality that, I mean, very few characters, even in the published Silmarillion, have. Um, it's not that kind of story, right? And certainly the Annals and even the old Quenta, um, or even the earlier Quenta, is not much of that kind of story either, right? It's It tells us about events, and it tells us what happened. It starts, its, its roots are in plot summary uh, and, uh, and annals entries, right? That's, that's, that's where both of those two things come from. This is a different kind of narrative, right? This is more like, more like a novel, more like a historical romance, right? Of the kind, more like the kind of thing that The Lord of the Rings is, right? And Melkor also. We see Melkor here Doing what? Nothing. Cursing the sea, but nothing comes of this, right? This isn't a, a plot moment. 
you would leave this out of a plot summary every time, right? Him standing, gnawing his mind, which I completely agree with you, Karita, is a fantastic phrase. Gnawing his mind between evil hope and doubt. But when he had stood revolving his chances as long as his urgency allowed, he turned away and went down to the shore. So just seeing him standing there being divided in mind, essentially, right, um, is uh, remarkable, right? Again, just remarkable on a narrative level. This is a different kind of story, right? And his cursing of the sea. We're told in one sentence in the published Silmarillion uh, that Morgoth always hated the sea, but we never saw it, right? We never heard it. He never comments on it, right? And here we get this. Uh, um, this is a, a really interesting. I don't know. It, it, he's kind of reminding me both um, of Milton's Satan and of uh, of uh, Melville's Captain Ahab here to some extent, right? Cursing the sea, threatening to shrivel. Uh, this sea, to, threatening to conquer the sea uh, and to shrivel it to stinking ooze, right? Um, that's, um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, yeah, Arthur, I can't avoid that kind of thing. Um, Arthur says, should we read anything into Olmo and Ase shall wither, um, but Uinen will crawl at my feet. Uh, you know, that is the contrast between the destruction of the male Vala and the enslavement uh, of the female. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 we don't have any reason to think that, I mean, I don't know of any reason to think that there's any sort of special grudge towards Uinen that Melkor has. I can't remember it if there is. Um, that would lead him to sing, single her out in any other way. Um, but yeah, Arthur, I mean, it kind of sounds to me that... Um, you know, Melkor, like, uh, um, like, uh, uh, you know, like Conan is, you know, imagining hearing the lamentation of their women, right? I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be, um, there does seem to be a sexual element here. Um, and yes, Arthur, we do, we should remember that in the earlier version, in the Book of Lost Tales version, um, and it still remains, though it's much less in um, uh, in the published Silmarillion, there is a distinct sexual dimension to Luthien's dancing before Morgoth. That's very explicit in the Book of Lost Tales. Indeed, she flirts with him. She leads him on in that way on purpose. It's part of her thing. It's part of her deception. It's part of the trick that she's playing on him uh, is to play on those sexual desires of his. Um, and uh, anyway, so yeah, I mean, you're right, Arthur, to remind us that he has, he, Morgoth, has already been uh, depicted as a sexualized creature, a, a creature of masculine desire um, in the books already. So, yes, uh, there's something... Um, there is, I think, something there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Josiah is pointing out that the 
relationship with him and Aryan has uh, uh, sexual aspects. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, uh, William Coley says that Hatred of the Sea would support the inference that Melkor was a Vala of Fire uh, that was made back in the first few classes. Possibly, yes. Like, in the sense, uh, William, in that sense, that uh, Olmo is like his opposite number, right? And instead of the rest of the Valar, you know, we have opposites coming together uh, and working together. Uh, and through their, their you know, cooperation and collegiality, right, they, they create a world. Melkor is only in competition uh, with his opposite number, who would be Olmo here. And of course, William, if we think it through, if we think both backwards and forwards, backwards in time, uh, in real world time to earlier drafts and forward uh, in draft progress to the later half of the Silmarillion, Olmo as Melkor's primary opponent pans out, doesn't it? Um, in the sense of Olmo taking a hand in Middle-earth to oppose Melkor in ways that the other Valar don't as we move forward. So kind of something there, right? Not saying that that, again, the fire and water thing is the only way to read that, but but yeah, um, his, um, his uh, condemnation, you know, his... Ajita against the sea here uh, certainly does seem to fit in with that. Okay, so what's Melkor getting up to? Why is he not going into... Why is he not going to go to the trees? Why is he not participating in the darkening of Valinor and instead just orchestrating the darkening of Valinor? Well, here's what he's doing. Outside he had lurked until the failing of the light announced that Angoliante had done her work. Then through the Calakirian, now only a dim ravine in walls of shadow, he came striding back, Lord of Utumno, a black shape of hate, visiting the places of his humiliation with revenge. All the land fell swiftly through the grey twilight into night, as Melkor stood within the Ring of Doom and cursed it, and he defiled the judgment seat of Manway and threw down the thrones of the Valar. Then he went on to his second mark, which he had kept secret in his mind, but Angoliante was aware of him, and turning swiftly, she overtook him on his road. Aghast indeed was Melkor to see her, monstrous, grown to a lust and power that he could not master without aid. He could not contend with her, even if time allowed, and he could not escape. She took him into her unlight, and they went on together to the one place in the land of the Valar that he would have hidden from her. Now, Christopher opined in his notes that that last is the reason for the change, fundamentally. That the reason that Morgoth and um, Ungoliant go separate ways during the Darkening of Valinor is because Tolkien has made... the Basically, Christopher opines that the plot decision that Tolkien made uh, was to separate the two of them because he, Tolkien, did not like the idea of Morgoth inviting Ungoliant along with him to Formanos. Right? How on earth would um, how on earth would he expect? I mean, we know he's not going to feed the Silmarils to her, right? Um, his plan is to defraud her from the very beginning. That's where we get that line about you know, thus did the great thief set his snare for the lesser, right? Um, he's planning to defraud her all along. Uh, I mean, you know, she got to suck the trees dry, so like that's already 
pretty good uh, for her. And uh, but he's planning to keep Formanos to himself. So he arranges a meeting place with her and does and stands her up. Right. Runs off to Formanos himself instead. But she catches up with him. So when she she does come with him to Formanos, um, but it is not by his will and his invitations. Um, so that's Christopher's reading. I am not questioning it uh, in in one sense. That is, I, I can easily believe that um, Tolkien was, in fact, thinking that, you know, that he did think it more in keeping with Morgoth's character and plans to not invite, to try to ditch on Goliath earlier in the game, right? Um, that seems to me to make sense. And I would just say as a footnote to that, notice what that implies already, right? Um, that is, it shows him thinking through the... Um, it shows him thinking through the character and motivations of Morgoth in new and different ways. Why did he never do that before? Right? Why did he never introduce this change before? Has his concept of Morgoth's character changed? Maybe, but I kind of think not. I tend to think that it's only now that he's beginning to ask himself these kinds of questions about Morgoth. Again, before it was historical chronicle plot summary, right? Morgoth and Ungoliant took out the trees, and then they went to Formanos, and they stole the Silmarils and killed Finway, and then they headed off across the Helcaraxa, right? I mean, the, that kind of bare-bones summary of what happened, such as like you might see uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a historical chronicle, um, is the origin, and everything else was sort of building from that. This seems to me not just a matter of I'm going into more detail, but I'm going into a different kind of detail. He's now doing with Morgoth what he did consistently with characters in The Lord of the Rings, right? Putting himself inside their heads and saying, what would this character do? What decisions would he make, right? And I really don't think that that was, I'm not saying he never did that kind of thing in the earlier writings of the Silmarillion, but that wasn't the number one principle. That seems pretty clear just from, as I say, the kind of narrative um, that it was. So that's one really interesting thing here. But of course, Morgoth doesn't go into Valmar. He does not, he's not present at the darkening of Valinor. He's not present at the destruction of the trees. Um, that uh, is a bold move. A very bold move on Tolkien's part, because, again, he's still responsible, like he still orchestrated it, and he set Ungoliant on to do it and strengthened her in order to enable her to do it. He's still responsible. Um, but losing that moment when he himself strikes the blows uh, to wound the trees, which enables Ungoliant then to put her beak to the gaping wounds in each trunk and suck them dry... Um, his is the hand who strike that strikes the blow that enables the trees to be killed, and that's a that's a loss, right? That's a significant loss um, in the narrative. So, with what does Tolkien replace it? An act of vandalism, right? An act of vandalism is what he replaces it with. Um, again, Christopher. <clears throat> does not speak highly of this. That is, um, he, Christopher, 
sort of dismisses the idea that it was for the sake of adding this scene that Tolkien made that choice, right? Um, Christopher does he seems to sort of dismiss, I think, to some extent, it's my reading anyway of Christopher's note, was that he was a little bit dismissive of the significance of this passage. Um, but, um, but I think it's really interesting, and I think it's fairly important, because again, if he's not going to... What is going on while darkness is falling upon... Uh, is falling upon Valinor. And the answer is Morgoth is throwing down the thrones of the Valar. He goes to the place um, uh, he goes to the place where he was judged. This is the circ- the Ring of Doom. Right? The Ring of Doom where he was brought and his, where his trial happened. Right? Before all of the Valar seated in their thrones. Where he abased himself and lied and begged. Right? Uh, and pretended to be better and to have changed. Right? So that he could be let go. Um, and he curses it. And he defiles the judgment seat of Manway. I don't know what that means. What exactly did Melkor do? to the judgment seat of Manway. He throws down the other thrones, but he specifically defiles the judgment seat of Manway. Um, I I don't know what that entails. I mean, he possibly just threw it down as well, and that's just kind of being singled out. But I don't know if there's some other act that he is doing, other defiling act. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Matt, I'm not sure I want to know exactly either. But, again, it's an interesting touch. Um, once again, I would say, we see Tolkien getting more into the character of Morgoth. We learn more from in this scene about what Morgoth is like, what his personality is like, right, at this t- point in his story. Much more. We learn much more about that here than we do in the published Silmarillion. Right. We see Morgoth's pride, right, returning to the place of his humility and asserting his dominance over it. Right. Trying to reverse his earlier humiliation by instead bringing humiliation upon the Valar, not just by darkening the trees, which is a significant blow. Right. But defiling Manway's judgment seat to show his disdain for Manway and for Manway's dooms. Right, and to throw down their thrones to show what he thinks about their claims to rulership, right? And cursing the Ring of Doom where they pass their dooms, right? Setting his curse against their dooms. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and yeah. Marianne, you're absolutely right. Uh, Mary, uh, uh, he's vindictive, like a spoiled child or obsessed adult. There's a kind of pettiness to this, right? I mean, on the one hand, you can look at it from a certain angle in which this has a, this has a kind of grandeur to it, right? A kind of symbolic grandeur. Um, again, the sort of the reversal of his humiliation and all that, whatever. Like, yeah, okay, sure. That, that kind of works. Um, but it's not hard to look at it from another perspective and say, seriously, this is the guy who claims to be king of the, this is what he's going to do. Um, uh, you know, he's just going to like come to 
come through the Calicarian, come to the Ring of Doom, and what, like pee on the throne or something? I mean, like, this is petty. It's petty. This is petty. Um, he's not accomplishing anything that isn't symbolic, right? Um, uh, yeah, Josiah, that's a really interesting parallel. Josiah says it's like the unman uh, in Perelandra. Um, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Perelandra. Yes, Melkor takes puerile pleasure in the debasement of the good. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, again, you can look at this from a certain angle, which makes him look grand, right, and powerful and uh, making a symbolic statement. Um, but you can also see it from another angle in which this makes him look childish uh, and weak and petty and merely, merely vindictive. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and I also agree that, um, uh, Brian, you were pointing out that we see him, Morgoth, increasingly uh, letting others do his fighting and take risks for him. In fact, we see him as uh, you, I think that was you who pointed this out. No, it was David Attlee says uh, Morgoth looks more like Sauron sending his agents but not going himself. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Um, Sauron in the later days, right? Like Sauron, Sauron in the Third Age, right? Uh, especially the late Third Age. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, William, I agree. It does. This does seem a little bit like a temper tantrum, right? And of course, his cowardice uh, is emphasized by the fact that he's skulking away, hoping to hide from Ungoliant. Right. He's trying to ditch her, but she finds him. And when she finds him, he can't shake her. He does not have the power to shake her. So there's no question that it, this is another thing. I mean, again, think of that moment in the published Silmarillion when Melkor looks down upon from the height, right, looks down upon Valinor and laughs and goes leaping down the side of the mountain with his spear and Ungoliant at his side. And then he runs in and he smites the trees. Right. This is Morgoth powerful, right? Striking directly at the heart of his enemies, sneaking in, yes, not challenging them or anything like that, but um, to replace that with the Melkor who gnaws his mind, curses the sea, you know, pees on the throne and then runs away to hide from Ungoliant, right? Uh, hoping that she won't catch up with him. Um, it's a sig That's a bold change. Very, very bold change. Um, but I think really interesting. And one of the things... One of the other trends that I would point to here, because why, right? The next natural question is, why would Tolkien make this change? And I know the why questions, hard, you know, we're trying to guess what was in Tolkien's mind. And I'm not really saying that. What I'm saying, as always, is what is the pattern here, right? What is the pattern of these changes that Tolkien is making? Um, one is, as I've said before, it's he's getting inside Morgoth's head more. But there's also a question of why does he make the choices that he does about what is in fact going on in Morgoth's head, right? And I think the answer to that, which ties him back to Ungoliant as well, both with the depiction of Ungoliant and with the depiction of Morgoth as they're both developing in this sequence, both of them point in my reading in the same direction. Tolkien is thinking through more what the path of evil looks like, right? Um, 
we talked about how, with Ungoliant's character, we talked about how in the early days in the Book of Lost Tales, she was just something other. She seemed to be something like an original force for evil and darkness from the beginning, right? Uh, like the demiurge of darkness or, uh, or even of evil, right? Not a fallen creature, not a fallen servant of Morgoth, but something entirely on her own, right? That doesn't work anymore because that doesn't work theologically in the world that he's building here now. So theologically, he rejects that and he makes her a servant of Morgoth, former servant of Morgoth who left his, who fell with him and left his service, right? Um, we already see, we've already seen with Ungoliant in her starved state, the anticipation, right? We've already seen a glimpse of where does her particular kind of evil lead to? What is the natural result of evil. With Morgoth, we're seeing it too, right? Look at how his, he who has set himself up as king of the world, right, as king of Arda, um, look at how he's fallen. Look at what he's doing here, the acts of vandalism, right? Um, that's, um, uh, again, so the trend that I would point to for both of them is as with so many other things that we're seeing, I think that Tolkien is thinking philosophically, theologically, he's thinking through these things more, just as we've seen him do with everything else. He is fleshing out now his, his, his story, his narrative of evil, right? And how the role that he wants evil to have. Um, but remember... Uh, he's um, he's always he's already gotten it right he's already shown it who is the exemplar who is the most perfect illustration of the consequences of going down this evil road Sauron in the Lord of the Rings kinda he does yes Saruman, yeah, also true. We see it there, too. We see how that story came into closer and closer focus. In fact, really, as we saw back in uh, The War of the Ring at the very last second, right, um, with Saruman. But I would say Gollum. Yeah, Lotho, we see a shadow of it in Lotho as well. Bruce, you're right. I, but I think Gollum. I think Gollum. Um, and... It is fascinating to think of that, isn't it? That Gollum story, the way that the stories of sort of the overarching theme of Sauron, um, the story of Saruman, but I think most centrally the story of Gollum and the tragedy of Gollum, um, how those things played out in The Lord of the Rings, what Tolkien learned from that, and, uh, and how his continuing to follow these lines and to ground his sub-creation increasingly and more thoroughly uh, in these kinds of uh, themes and ideas and philosophical ideas. Um, he, uh, um, he's now going back and reapplying them to Morgoth and to Ungoliant herself. <laughs> Florian says Gollum would totally have defiled Bilbo's chair and back end. <laughs> he probably would have. I agree. I agree. Um, 
Okay, let's keep going. Varda looked down from the holy mountain, and she beheld the shadow soaring up in sudden towers of gloom. Valmar was blotted out, and all the land foundered in a deep sea of night. Soon Tenequitil stood alone, a last island in a drowned world. All song ceased. There was silence in Valinor, and no sound could be heard, save only from afar there came on the wind through the pass of the mountains the wailing of the Teleri, like the cold cry of gulls. For it blew chill from the east in that hour, and the vast shadows of the sea were rolled against the walls of the shore. I've been trying to stop playing the why on earth didn't Christopher include this in the Silmarillion game? Um, because again, I, I, I've, I've talked about this. I think I can see the overall picture, but still there are some passages that we come to that I'm like, for real? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's more here. Uh, there's more here than we get in the published Silmarillion. Uh, and I love this. Um, yes, David, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Um, exactly. David Atlee says the description of Tenequitil here has parallels with the fall of Numenor and the Holy Mountain. Exactly. There will be another time when there will be a peak of a holy mountain, you know, being the last thing standing up above chaos and destruction, right? Um, and that parallel, um, because, yes, I absolutely see the same thing, right? And um, uh, it is, that's amazing. That's amazing to me. Um, even the way that he describes the shadow soaring up in sudden towers of gloom, um, uh, the words blotted out, foundered in a deep sea of night. You know, again, it's, it's, it's hard now not to think about Numenor with the way that the Numenor story has developed, right? And I would point out here as well that it is interesting to recall how the fall of Numenor is also explicitly recalled on multiple occasions in the Lord of the Rings at the downfall of Sauron as well. Um, but, um, man, love this. This is after um, Feanor refuses to give up the Silmarils. Thou hast spoken, said Mandos. Then again there was silence, and thought was stilled. But after a while Nienna arose, and she went up onto the mound, and she cast back her gray hood, and her eyes shone like stars in the rain, for her tears were poured out, and she washed away the defilements of Ungoliante. And when she had wept she sang slowly, mourning for the bitterness of the world, and all hurts of the marring of Arda. But even as she mourned, there was heard the sound of feet hastening in the night, then through the throng came the sons of Feanor flying from the north, and they bore new tidings of evil. Mithros spoke for them. Blood and darkness, he cried. Finway the king is slain, and the Silmarils are gone. Then Feanor fell upon his face and lay as one dead until the full tale was told.
two things here. I love getting more Nienna in this scene. She doesn't do anything that she doesn't do in the published Silmarillion. Um, but again, we get more of it. Um, not just the fact that she rises and weeps, right? And washes away the defilements of Ungoliante with her tears. That happens in the published Silmarillion. But um, she cast back her gray hood and her eyes shone like stars in the rain for her tears were poured out and she washed away the defilements of Ungoliante. Um, not to just harp on the narrative element, uh, but again, like, one of the Valar rising, casting back their hood and getting a description of what their eyes looked like in that moment is the kind of detail we don't usually get uh, in the Silmarillion, right? It's, it's a level of detail which is alien to the kind of story that, the, uh, that still the published Silmarillion um, uh, you know, uh, 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 shows. Um, yeah, yeah, Florian, exactly. The eyes part is not there uh, in the Silmarillion. Exactly, exactly. Um, her eyes shone like stars in the rain. Um, notice the connection there, right? Like stars in the rain for her tears were poured out. The connection to Varda, right? Thinking about Varda and the stars and the light that's above the shadow and then the rain... Uh, uh, the eyes of Nienna like stars in the rain. Um, and David, I agree, the Valar have their priorities straight. It's the defilement of the trees that's important, not the defilement of Manway's throne. Um, yes, yes. Um, once again, we see a greater interest in him, in Tolkien kind of stage managing who's going where and doing what and why. Again, questions which don't always come up in the published Silmarillion. What were the sons of Feanor doing? And where were they all exactly? Um, and who was it who brought the message to Feanor? Uh, you know, who brought the message about the, the death of Finway? And the just, you know, um, we get that here, right? He kind of closes that loop. It was the seven sons of Feanor who come running in, having fled from Formanos when Ungoliant and, and uh, Morgoth descended upon it, right? Um, and Finway is slain, and uh, uh, and the Silmarils are gone, and it's Mithros specifically uh, who conveys this, right? Oh, Josiah, that's really good. Josiah says, with the rain and the washing, I can't help but think of Goldberry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Nianna's washing day here, right? Uh, at the uh, at the at the darkening of Valinor. Yes. Yeah, Nienna has much more solemn washing days. A little less merry uh, than uh, than than Goldberry's washing days. This is much more than the autumn cleaning. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Um, even the detail of Feanor falling on his face and lying as one dead. Oh, but hang on. We're going to get the full tale soon. Mithros still. 
we heard the sound of great blows struck. Out of the cloud we saw a sudden flame of fire, and then there was one piercing cry. But when we urged on our horses, they reared and cast us to the ground, and they fled away wild. Stop. Ah, I forgot a piece of context here. Notice Tolkien has also answered the question. Hang on a second. Um, why weren't the seven sons of Feanor killed? If they were there in Formenos, why doesn't Morgoth kill them all? He never even asks that question in the earlier versions of the story. Now he's not only asked it, he's answered it. They were out hunting, right? They were out hunting at the time, um, and they came upon, you know, they sort of saw this from a distance, right? Okay, we lay upon our faces without strength, for suddenly the cloud came on, and for a while we were blind. But it passed us by, and moved away north at great speed. Melkor was there, we do not doubt. But not he alone. Some other power was with him, some huge evil. Even as it passed, it robbed us of all wit and will. Darkness and blood. When we could move again, we came to the house. There we found the king slain at the door. His head was crushed as with a great mace of iron. We found no others. All had fled, and he had stood alone, defiant. That is plain, for his sword lay beside him, twisted and untempered as if by a lightning stroke. All the house was broken and ravaged. Naught is left. The treasuries are empty. The chamber of iron is torn apart. The Silmarils are taken. Um, yeah, Arthur, exactly. In the published Silmarillion, we're just told that messengers came from Formanos. We're not told who. Um, notice how much more how much more emotionally powerful this scene is, not just because we're actually getting the message and a, and a, and a well, not first-hand description of the death of Finway, but a second-hand description of the death of Finway, um, at least a kind of eyewitness, a, a description of the scene at least, right? Um, but again, the increased emotional power of having his sons be reporting this to, of them having witnessed it, uh, you know, come upon the death of their dead grandfather uh, and the the destruction of their keep and the 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 theft of all of their father's stuff, right? And then them coming and and describing this themselves. Um, it's much much more powerful than some messengers uh, who came and said that and were not even told who who it is. Um, yeah. Good, Florian, I agree. In the published Silmarillion, we know the seven sons didn't go with him. Uh, Feanor, that is. So they must have been at Formanos, and since they didn't die, I agree with you, Florian. The published Silmarillion just kind of leaves us to imagine or assume that the sons of Feanor just fled and abandoned Finway. Um, so that when it says that Finway alone stood, uh, and that's why he was killed, the alone seemed always seemed to me also to be primarily an indictment of this, of Feanor's sons, right? Yeah, sorry, Dad, we totally ran away. Um, yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Um, could, David Attlee says, here's another element from The Lord of the Rings. The riders who wish to confront the great evil, but their horses can't abide the fear. Yeah, poor Mithros is going all Arnor on us there, isn't he? Um yeah, yeah. Um, notice even, again, I love the cadence of that last paragraph. Notice how he um, 
he subsides into really clipped, simple sentences as he goes down to the end of the paragraph. Darkness and blood. When we could move again, we came to the house. There we found the king slain at the door. His head was crushed as with a great mace of iron. We found no others. All had fled, and he had stood alone, defiant. That is plain, for his sword lay beside him, twisted and untempered as if by lightning stroke. All the house was broken and ravaged. Naught is left. The treasuries are empty. The chamber of iron is torn apart. The Silmarils are taken. That is a big rhetorical finish there uh, by Mithros. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, good, yeah. Christopher's also recalling, of course, the Knights of the House of Theoden at Pelennor Field. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, George, I'm not sure about the lightning stroke. Um, George is asking, um, you know, the flame of fire and the lightning stroke. Um, yeah. Um, George asks specifically, does Morgoth actually have a power uh, of fire? Can he manipulate fire like Olmo can water? That seems very possible. Um, I certainly think that the description there is of Morgoth's power, not Ungoliance, right? Ungoliance is the darkness uh, which is surrounding them and which freaks out the horses and which um, makes them, robs the sons of Feanor of all wit and will while it passes by. Um, but it's clearly Morgoth's power that does the lightning stroke uh, and the uh, uh, and the fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Arthur says his sword got untempered. Uh, is that a thing? Yes. Yes, I believe it is a thing. But yes, it has to be pretty hot. William says you're looking at about 2000 degrees uh, to suck the temper out of a sword. Um, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Um, and yes, Bruce, the fact that um, Finway's head is crushed uh, as with a great mace of iron, is clearly a setup for the duel with Fingolfin later on, right? Um, notice how, by describing the cause of death for Finway, um, we are getting a, a deliberate setup, right? A deliberate anticipation for that scene. Um, you know, there is now this element, there's like a, a you know, it gives just the faintest hint of an Ego Montoya to Fingolfin's duel with Morgoth, right? Um, which is fun, right? That's that's fun. Um, I like that actually. Um, yeah, not if it Fingolfin Fingolfin's motivations had been replaced by simply like "You killed my father, prepare to die." Um, but I. I don't dislike that at all as an overlay here. Um, but again, I don't know that I um, uh, need to uh, keep emphasizing it. But I, just again, it's not just that these are things that aren't in the published Silmarillion. These are all things that aren't in the published Silmarillion. And they're things that point to 
the way that the narrative is growing, the direction in which the narrative is growing in Tolkien's mind. This is just a different kind of story than Tolkien had been telling. Ungoliant's demands. Not so much, said she. But there was, you know, that is, Morgoth has just said he didn't promise to give her the whole world to feed her belly. Not so much. But there was a great treasury of which you have said naught to me, and would have said naught even now if I had not watched you. I will have all that, yea, with both hands you shall give it. Oh man, the way that their earlier exchange and his giving of the gems earlier on, the two green gems, sets up this line with the yea, with both hands shall you give it. It's so much more powerful here. Thou hast had the half already, said Morgoth, for when she was with him against his will at the sack of Formanos, he had let her feast a while upon the gems of Feanor, so that she should not come to the chamber of iron. I hunger, she said. I will have the other half. Then perforce Morgoth surrendered to her the gems that he bore with him, one by one and grudgingly, and she devoured them, and their beauty perished from the world. Then her strength was renewed, but her lust unsated. With one hand you give, she said, with the left only. Open your right hand. This is very close to the dialogue, of course, from the published Silmarillion. Notice what gets added, right? The practical consideration. How did he keep her from devouring the Silmarils on sight, right? At Formanos. Answer. He distracted her with a bunch of other shiny gems. Hey, look at look at those gems over there. Those look, you, you totally want to munch on those, right? And then he hot foots it over to the Chamber of Iron, breaks into it, and takes the Silmarils for himself. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, not only that how much more satisfying this dialogue is in this wider context, right? And the way that this comes, the way that this comes as the reversal of that first conversation, which gets cut out of the published Silmarillion entirely when she's in the darkness and he's trying to lure her out with gems in both of his hands, right? Oh man, the payoff of this scene is like three times as high uh, here uh, as in the published Silmarillion. Here's Christopher talking about and acknowledging the change in the textual plans, uh, uh, Tolkien's textual plans for publishing the Silmarillion. Or at least how he's working on it. That in the pre-The Lord of the Rings period, the Annals of Valinor and the Annals of Beleriand consisted, constituted distinct entities, forming with the Quintus Silmarillion a tripartite work is very clear. And a list of the constituent parts of the matter of Middle-earth associated with the long letter to Milton Waldman shows that this was still the case, at least in, in theory at least, in 1951. So just to recall, remember there, um, he's talking about, uh, uh, he's referring back to stuff that we saw in the shaping of Middle-earth. Uh, remember when we were looking at the material that he was putting together, that he was building, uh, and we saw this again in The Lost Road when he was sort of revising all this stuff for publication. Um, and remember, we talked then at the time that the picture that seemed to be in Tolkien's mind, what he wanted to publish when he talked about publishing the Silmarillion, what that meant was this 
huge volume, really probably multiple volumes, which would contain each of these elements separately, right? The Ainulindale, uh, the Quintus Silmarillion, the Annals of Valinor, the, the Annals of Beleriand, the Hlamas, right? The Embarcanta, um, all those things, right? Um, and so Christopher is saying that's how it was. And in theory, at least in 1951, that's still how he was thinking of it. Yet we have seen how close the, vision, the versions did in fact become in the course of the 1951 revision. And now, in the last phase of his work on the actual narratives, when, as I have suggested, my father was, envis was envisaging a re-expansion of the whole, a new conception of the Silmarillion, a new and much fuller mode of narrative, he derived entire passages from the annals with scarcely any significant change. I have said that the Annals of Amon and the rewriting, the later Quinta, of the first part of chapter 6, as I think clearly contemporary, are too similar in every aspect, if continually different in actual wording, to be regarded as the product of a separate tradition of learning and memory, or even as the product of two different lore masters. But the relation of this last version of the Silmarillion tradition to the Annals of Amon, on which it draws, seems to show that my father had now ceased to regard them, as different works. It may be, though I have no other evidence for it, that if he had continued this last version, he would have cannibalized the annals wherever he chose to, regarding the latter now as no more than a constituent draft text for the sole work that was to emerge, the Silmarillion. Okay. And this seems to me um, uh, exactly the direction that I, I completely, I, I agree. All of the evidence, just even the individual narrative evidence seems to point in that direction, right? Tolkien saying, forget the whole annals, Quenta thing. Let's instead put them all together. But I would go one step further from Christopher. Or well, I mean, I, I would, I guess, I don't think I'm disagreeing with him or really going further than him, but I would bring out an emphasis here. Um, uh, Christopher's emphasizing this primarily as, like, different texts, right? That the annals are ceasing to be a thing in Tolkien's mind, and he's really just going to, like, the Silmarillion is going to be um, a one larger and more unified narrative rather than all these little constituent bits. Yes, certainly, that's true. But again, in the post-Lord of the Rings context, again, looking at the questions that we've been asking and the things that we've been seeing all the way through from the beginning of Morgoth's ring, I mean, we do see evidence that he is investing himself in bringing the Silmarillion into line with the Lord of the Rings, not only in detail, not only, you know, so therefore retconning things that need to be retconned in order to make it fit with the, with the story as it evolves in the Lord of the Rings, not only philosophically and in framework, right? He's got to make the world fit. He's got to do world building, not just myth making now, right? And thus recast much of the Silmarillion as we've been seeing him struggle to do, right? But in addition, it now seems also that he really is thinking about telling the Silmarillion story in, a, in the narrative style of the Lord of the Rings, at the narrative level, almost, of the Lord of the Rings. That what Tolkien was envisioning here was... A, a full-length telling as a historical 
romance. And Nancy, I have no idea, Nancy asks very sensibly, but how long would the Silmarillion have been? Surely too long for one book. Yeah, surely too long for one book. I absolutely agree. And this, by the way, leads me to assume, Christopher hasn't explained, why didn't you include any of that awesome stuff? Uh, And the reason, I think, Tolkien didn't write enough of it. Right? And we don't get enough. He didn't rewrite enough of it to be able to maintain it at that level. So had Christopher included this stuff, all this new material, it would have made this section stand out among the rest of which is still very plot summary. I mean, remember the published, the text from the published Silmarillion, the text of the fall of Gondolin that's in the published Silmarillion is drawn from like 1930. I mean, way like the Quentin Nolder Inwa version of the story, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so, you know, to have that version, you know, that kind of narrative sitting side by side with this now new, you know, the new kind of narrative he's trying to make it into now, 30 years later, um, those things would be awkward, sort of fitted into one narrative. So, you know, again, and we know Christopher has said that the primary thing he was shooting for was consistency when he published it. Um, So, but boy, boy, would that... (laughs) decision be hard to make, wouldn't it? Man, I can't even imagine. I'm going to not include this other awesome stuff because it's too awesome. It makes this part of the text stand out as significantly more awesome. It's going to make the other parts seem lame by comparison. So I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and publish the less awesome version uh, here. Right. And uh, uh, and therefore, you know, not to make the rest of it look bad. That's tough. That's t- and that's a simplistic characterization of it, but uh, it's tough. It's tough. Okay. Um, and I say tough. I mean, like it's that would have been hard to do, but again, a difficult position. I guess if there's one thing that I can say firmly about the editorial process of the Silmarillion is that the more I see of this, you know, the more we see of this stuff together as we're exploring it. Um, the less I envy Christopher, the job that he had, you know, in the mid seventies when he was, I mean, that, wow, that would have been really hard to do. Um, and it makes me actually admire the humility of his decision even more, right? The temptation to try to continue it, right? The temptation to go all Brian Herbert, on the Silmarillion, it had to have been a big temptation, right? He knew what his dad was trying to do. He can see what his dad was trying to do. So to inst- instead of saying, all right, no, I'm going to, I'm not going to use the later, more awesome versions. I'm going to use the earlier versions because it fits better with the other early versions that I have. And then that way I can present all this stuff. Um, it would have been so easy for him to convince himself well dad really wanted it thoroughly rewritten so I guess that falls to me I'll do my best right he could so easily have done that but he didn't and you know I can't say I can't say I think he was wrong but boy 
I'm just glad it was him, not me. For several reasons, I'm glad it was him, not me. And I'm sure many of you would be too. That is, not only glad that it was him, not you, but I'm also sure that you're glad that it was him, not me. (laughs) Anyway, okay. And with that, we segue to another one of those bits. Um, uh, Another one of those bits that... um, uh, Tolkien went on to write very much in the spirit of the stuff that we've been seeing uh, and uh, really, really fascinating. And that, of course, is the Athrobeth. One thing has been significantly missing, right? We've done lots of conversations about elf bodies and souls and death and mortality and the marring of Arda and hope and, uh, and you know, hope versus justice and all these other things, right? We've had lots of um, uh, talk about all that stuff as Tolkien has worked his way through that, brainstormed things, thought through stuff, revised, incorporated it into the narrative and all those kinds of things, right? But a, there's been a huge question that has not been asked in the midst of all of that. What about humans? What about human mortality? Because, of course, that was always a bit of a problem, in a sense, right? A problem in the sense that is the, the problem is... Okay, I mean, human mortality has always been a bit of a, bit of a problem. I'm not... Uh, I don't mean... Let me back up a bit. There's always been a difficulty... An, 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 an uncomfortableness, uh, as Jane Cobb might say, uh, with the way that human mortality was depicted, with the characterization of human mortality as the gift of Iluvatar to men. Uh, because it seems, of everything, uh, in the sort of theological framework of the Silmarillion material, the thing most at odds with Christian theology. Not that that's, you know, deadly, like it's not like that's illegal or something, but it's conspicuous in Tolkien's world. You know, Tolkien expressed, um, you know, that his work was, you know, was fundamentally Catholic, Catholic and I do not disagree with him about that. I, I, I totally see where he's coming from there. Um, uh, it is conspicuous. Um, now that he's been thinking through all this, it's time to think about humans, right? So here we go. Now the Eldar learned that, according to the lore of the Adain, men believed that their Hroar were not by right nature short-lived, but had been made so by the malice of Melkor. It was not clear to the Eldar whether men meant by the general marring of Arda, which they themselves held to be the cause of the waning of their own Hroar, or by some special malice against men as men, that was achieved in the Dark Ages before the Adain and the Eldar met in Beleriand, or by both. But to the Eldar it seemed that, if the mortality of men had come by special malice, the nature of men had been grievously changed from the first design of Eru. And this was a matter of wonder and dread to them. For, if it were indeed so, then the power of Melkor must be, or have been from the beginning, far greater than even the Eldar had understood whereas the original nature of men must have been strange indeed, and unlike that of any others of the dwellers in Arda. Okay, so first context here. This is a puzzle to the Eldar. 
the Eldar don't get it. They don't understand it. But this idea, this idea that human mortality is not the original gift of Iluvatar to men is now floated out there, right? Men believed that their Hoar were not by right nature short-lived, but had been made so by the malice of Melkor. Okay, so it sounds at first like he's suggesting that, like, he's now revising. Is I mean, we can understand that, right? I mean, we, we can understand that. We've seen the issue with the, uh, you know, with the orc problem, right? You know, where he had to uh, go back and revisit a major story element because of a theological consideration, right? And we saw him struggle with that and struggle with that and struggle with that. Never really resolved the struggling with that. Um, the, at first, it sounds like that's exactly where he's going here, right? That he said in the early Silmarillion, just as he said in the early Silmarillion tradition that Morgoth manufactures orcs, right? So, too, he also said that death was, you know, mortality was part of, was, was the gift of Iluvatar to men from the beginning, right? They were just designed to be mortal. Unlike the Christ, Christian theology, which states that death is the consequence of sin, right? That death only entered the world, sin and death only entered the world at the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, and as a, as a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. So is this him having worked through the theology and having uh, more perfectly, attempting now more perfectly to reconcile the world building of the Silmarillion with, uh, with that, that now is he, is he, is he, is he rolling it back? Is he just changing his mind? Death is no longer the gift of Iluvatar to men. Um, at first, it sounds like that could be just what he's doing, right? The malice of Melkor. Okay, so he's now, you know, something about uh, something that happened back in the Dark Ages before the Adain and the Eldar met in Beleriand. So was there any, a fall of Eden in then, right? That more, more that Melkor was involved with, right? And so through his malice, he ended up bringing about sin and thus death uh, to the Adain. Um, this sounds like he's definitely kind of... Um, uh, Throwing um, throwing a lifeline in that direction, right? Preparing, perhaps, to reverse the whole theological position of the children of Iluvatar from the earliest um, uh, from the earliest uh, uh, thing. So Florian asks, "Why must the original nature of men have been strange? It seems like men without mortality are more similar to the elves, not more unlike them." And more similar in one way, but different in another, because they don't go to Mandos. They don't stay here. What happens to them when they die? So, like, the question of if Melkor's malice led to them dying quickly, you know, quickly and frequently, okay, fine. But surely Melkor didn't, like, steal their souls or something. Like, why are they not bound to Arda? Um, if they were to be just, like, Another kindred of the like, like the just like the Eldar, right? Same kind of Hroa, Fea, bound to Arda situation, right? But they went, they got twisted, cursed in some way by Melkor. Golly, doesn't it begin to sound like the humans are almost like orcs, right? Elves who have been taken and twisted, their fate messed with. Anyway, we'll see. Yeah, okay, so, um, uh, So, 
But at the end of the day, what happens to their Fear? Their Fear when their Hroar dies. Okay, so so the Hroar Hroar dies sooner. And inevitably, like all of them die, dropping dead all over the place, right? Uh, There's a 100% mortality rate among the humans, which is not true of the elves, right? Um, But even apart from that, what happens afterwards is the real puzzler, I think. Um, And surely Melkor couldn't have done that. So if, if that's the case, like, so that's what I think is puzzling about it. Um, uh, that's what I think is meant to be puzzling about it, Florian, is that um, it sounds to them like if what the men say is true, then it sounds to the Eldar like, so you are just like us, except not bound to Arda. So what? Most of you were going to live forever in Arda. But whenever you did experience death, like we do from time to time, you know, accidents happen. Um uh, then what? Those of you who die just, like, leave? Forever? Or where do you go? Like, the elf system makes sense, right? I mean, we're, we're all here in Arda, right? Death is a big deal, but not that big a deal in some ways. And so, yeah. So that's what I think is meant to be puzzling there. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, Florian, the not being bound to Arda... There's that's just a wide, wide gap, which would be totally inexplicable to the elves. Again, the longevity thing is similar, but that very similarity makes the other thing seem weirder. So what? Why is why are you not? Where do you go? Um, because, again, the longevity thing that harmonizes with the being bound to Arda. Right. Like it's clear what the plan is. It's clear what plan A is for the elves. If that's the case, right? The plan is that they 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 are born, you know, Fea and Roa, and they live throughout the time of Arda, right, peaceably together, and um, you know, do what they do and accomplish what they accomplished, like living them and Arda together, right? That's the whole picture. And then, but if death does happen along the way, if the separation of the, you know, if something happens to your Roa, no big deal, right? You stay in Arda, you keep doing your thing. And when you can be reborn, then you have the continuous memory, right? You still have the overall arc, which matches the overall arc of Arda. So again, it all makes sense. But how would it make sense to have a similar kind of immortality? And yet, if something happens to your Roa, you're just gonzo, right? And you never come back. It's like, so you just like, oh, okay. So, I mean, was that the plan? Is that a Luvatar's plan? Why is that's a different plan? It's a weird plan um, than uh, compared to the Eldar. So that I think is where the, is where the weirdness, um, where the weirdness enters in. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I... Yeah. Okay. Um, exactly, Michael. Um, it creates a situation where your kind as a whole is split between there's some who have gone and some who have stayed. And therefore, again, like, what's the plan? Like, what's plan A for humans? Like, how's this meant to work? Um, it's um, it's weird. It's weird. Um, okay. As always, you guys are asking really good questions. We're going to hold off because we're going to come back to these again. This is this is a kind of overview that he... This is like a 
little preamble to the Athrobeth, right? Um, and I wanted to, I almost skipped it because we'll get to every one of these issues later on, but, um, but I didn't want to skip it because it's a, it's a good kind of priming of the pump, right? It, making sure to sort of contextualize what exactly is the question here. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's dig into the narrative and we'll come back around to these questions organically as we go through the Athrobeth. Endreth was a woman of the house of Beor, the sister of Bregor, father of Barahir, whose son was bearing one hand the renowned. She was wise in thought, and learned in the lore of men and their histories, for which reason the Eldar called her Silend, Wiseheart. Of the wise, some were women, and they were greatly esteemed among men, especially for their knowledge of the legends of ancient days. Another wise woman was Adonel, sister of Hador Lorendal, at, at one time lord of the people of Marach, whose lore and traditions, and their language also, were different from those of the people of Beor. But Adonel was married to a kinsman of Andreth, Belamir of the house of Beor. He was grandsire of Emeldir, mother of Beren. In her youth, Andreth had dwelt long in Belamir's house, and so had learned from Adonel much of the lore of the people of Marach, besides the lore of her own folk. Okay. Um, no, notice the uh, respect with which the wise of the men are being treated here, both by the narrator and also by the elves as well. Um, I do not think that wise heart is a kind of patronizing, um, uh, you know, name that is given to Andreth by the Eldar. Um, they seem to have genuine respect, not only for Andreth and Adonel personally, but for the wise among men in general. Um, as I mentioned in my subtitle there, I am also struck by the fact that all of the new characters introduced in this story are female. Um, it led me to think, we've been, I, we've been noticing this for a while, right? How he seems to be going out of his way to go in and add more female characters to the Silmarillion, um, adding in the wives and daughters, adding in, you know, expanding the descriptions and even some of the roles uh, of the female characters who were there in the original. He's not cut any of the men. He's not gender shifted any of the men. Um, but he's definitely um, emphasized uh, many of the women. Um, what percentage of the new characters that he introduces in these later revisions, in these like 1950s revisions um, of the Silmarillion material, what percentage of those new characters are female? I don't know the answer to this, by the way. Haven't counted. But I think if we do, um, uh, I think if we do count them, we would find a very high percentage there, especially in this Quentin material, Quentin Silmarillion stuff. Um, I, I think it's pretty remarkable. I really do. Um, I am trying to think among like the elf lords and these great families and everything else that we're reading. Was there a single male character he added when he added somebody to the genealogies? I'm not sure he did add any male characters. Um, but added a number of female characters and expanded 
the roles and descriptions of several of the female characters who had existed before, not to mention inserting others, retconning them back in like Eladriel, of course. Um, and then here, right? It would have been easy for him to have at least one of these be male, right? We, Andreth needs to be a woman for other reasons from later on, uh, as we'll see. But Adonel doesn't have to be, right? She could easily have been a wise man um, from among them. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it's... Uh, He's not done that. And I, I, this seems to me, I am a, I am about ready to say this. This not. This seems to be a plain trend. Um, Tolkien's going back and adding more female roles, more female characters. Um, uh, it's a definite trend uh, in his um, in his revisions here which I think is really interesting. Ah, Josiah, good. Josiah is recalling an example. Did that come up already, Josiah? Or does that come up later? I've forgotten him. Uh, Sorry, uh, Josiah is pointing out that Turgon and Fingon uh, do get a younger brother added in, Argon, uh, who wasn't there uh, before. Um, it's later. Okay, that's what I thought. We haven't gotten him yet. Okay, then he doesn't count, Josiah. I'm talking about what, what we've seen here uh, in these revisions here, not the additional stories and things that he adds later on. Um, uh, but in this in this pass-through. And, and, I, and the, one of the reasons, Josiah, I'm making that distinction here is that here he is still, unlike later, later he's not going to be any longer really revising the material. Right. Um, He's doing something else. And we'll look at that when we get there. But um, while he's revising the narrative is where I see him, where this pattern seems to be becoming fairly clear of him both emphasizing female roles and adding female roles. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And yes, Brian, I agree. In one sense, adding more female characters makes the story seem more believable as a world and less mythical, since you would expect a real world to be more gender balanced. People do actually have, they actually do need wives to produce all those sons, right? Um, yeah, but, but but of course, absolutely. Again, it, it's part of the shift, I think, of, it's part of the shift from Enel to, uh, to narr- you know, to, to more detailed narrative. But also, just again, I think, when he was in plot summary mode, right, which is where it all started back in the late 20s and early 30s, when he was working in plot summary mode and, and then, you know, historical chronicle mode, he was doing a summary of what, like the mighty kings and lords, who were almost all men, did. There were female characters involved already earlier on, um, even though Goadriel wasn't there yet. Um, but uh, But, you know, it was a lot of summary of things that the men did. Um, And as he has been working towards a shift in that narrative and is not thinking about it as a historical chronicle anymore, uh, but kind of coming down closer to the ground and seeing the characters and their families and things, we're getting, we're getting all these, all these women. Um, I am a little bit, um, uh, yeah, 
Jocelyn is exa asking exactly the question. Um, Jocelyn says, if we give you the premise of Tolkien adding female characters at this point, do you think he got public pushback from the Lord of the Rings readers that he was responding to? Um, do I think that he is... Um, do I think that he is doing that on purpose, that he is correcting that, like he feels like he should for some reason? I have a really hard time believing that... Um, uh, I have a really hard time believing either that he was responding is 1950s that he was responding to a large public outcry in the 1950s about female characters. Um, that's one thing I'm having a hard time imagining. The second is I'm having an even harder time imagining that Tolkien would have cared that much about that kind of thing. Um, it seems to me more uh, more likely. Um, to, as Alyssa says, you might as well try to influence a Bandersnatch. Um, exactly. Um, yeah, James Lubeck was thinking of exactly that same, uh, that same quote. Exactly. Um, uh, it's C.S. Lewis's comment on influencing Tolkien. Um, I think it... More likely now, Brian Dimick is suggesting, you know, could it be that he was so taken with Goadriel's character, you know, uh, after he created her that he wanted more of that um, possible? I mean, goodness knows it wouldn't be hard to create a kind of chronological narrative in which the development of the character of Goadriel um, and the need to put her back into the Silmarillion tradition is sort of the impetus or the catalyst uh, for this change. Um I could I could see that. Um, I could see that. But I think what I would vote for, um, my guess as to why he's doing this, as he really does seem to be, this seems to be happening, right? He seems to be actually doing it. Um, my own theory about it would be that it's simply a consequence of the kind of narrative that he's telling, Right. Um, he didn't care about the sisters and wives before because this wasn't that kind of a story. Um, I think he's doing more imagining what it's like to be the characters, imagining their world, filling again, doing more, not just. And I, I, I don't necessarily think he don't I don't think he wants it to be less mythical, but he's doing not only myth making, he's also doing world building. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Josiah says, I feel like Idril and Luthien in the early material were already more like the new female characters than Galadriel is. I agree. I agree. Um, there were already strong female characters uh, in the early tradition. Um, Josiah, just as you say, Idril and Luthien are two very excellent examples, even if you leave out, you know, Varda uh, and, uh, you know, Melian and others like that. Um but um, but yeah, I, I think it's um, so he's not introducing totally alien elements, right? He's not um, he's not doing strange new things, but it does seem to be realized more fully, realized differently. Um, but again, that it's this 
this has really jumped out at me in this passage. There's no a priori reason why Adonau has to be a woman, right? I mean, there's no, that's it's he could so easily have made, you know, he could have made them both for you know for that matter of that. Like he could have just had this be a story about the wise men among among humans. He doesn't, and of course, by not doing so, he's able to add a really beautiful wrinkle later on. But um, uh, but most important, but but again, he could, and certainly with Adonel. He still could, um, but um, uh, but he doesn't. Yeah, Brian says that the, those early strong female characters were, labs- were absolutely necessary to the arc of the story. Now he's adding female characters where they aren't essential, and I agree with that. Now, I would say, though, Brian, that the strength of the female characters wasn't necessarily— wasn't, wasn't necessary. Like, the, the particular things, the particular jobs that Luthien and Idril do— within their stories, right, within the context of their stories, one could write versions of the stories where they didn't get that, right? Where instead of being the one to rescue people, Luthien just gets rescued all the time. That's possible. There have been other versions of stories that have been like that, right? Idril doesn't have to be the one who is foresighted and leads everybody out of Gondolin, right? Prepares the way of escape and leads uh, leads the people out of Gondolin. That didn't have to be her. That could have been Tuor, right? It could, it could have been all Tuor. Uh, from the beginning, and Idril could have been, you know, his the, his Gondolindrum trophy wife all the way through. Um, Elwing as well. Uh, uh, anyway, so, um, yes, yes. Yeah, Josiah says, especially Book of Lost Tales, Idril. Yes, she is particularly strong, I agree. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so, so I do think that the strength of his female characters is still a remarkable thing and it hasn't necessarily changed. I agree with Josiah that there's uh, some consistency there between the strong female characters he was having. What is remarkable now is not the kind of character that he's developing, but their mere frequency. The way in which he is, he seems to be filling in the female characters who were just not included, who were just left out. Um, and even now, when he's, de- you know, as here in this story, when he is developing entirely new um, characters, entire- an entirely new story, um, he gives it all, an all-female cast. Of course, he's going he's gonna to bring Finrod in, of course. Uh, he's going to establish as a point of contact one of his established uh, uh, Silmarillion elf heroes who is male um but his new characters here are all female okay um let's begin the debate we're almost out of time but uh we can start a little bit then you are content here said finrod content said andreth no heart of man is content what a sentence no heart of man is content all passing and dying is a grief to it but if the withering is less soon, then is less soon, th- th- then that is some amendment, a little lifting of the shadow. She's referring to the fact that men have started to live a little bit longer since they've been in Beleriand, right? Her 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 uh, uh, grandfather has just died, um, who was Beor's grandson, and all of them, Beor and his son and his son, all lived into their nineties, right? And then died. So she says, you know, content. No heart of man is content. All passing and dying is a grief to it. But if the withering is less soon, then that is some amendment, a little lifting of the shadow. What mean you by that? said Finrod. 
"'Surely you know well,' said Andreth, "'the darkness that is now confined to the north, but once—' And here she paused, and her eyes darkled, as if her mind were gone back into black years best forgot. But once lay upon all Middle-earth, while ye dwelt in your bliss. Ouch. Ouch. Um, Andreth is very edgy from the very beginning, right? She is angry. Um, she is scathing about the Eldar. Um, and, uh, yeah. Oh, I agree with those of you who love the word darkled. Um, yeah, yeah. We could try. Uh, we could try, Chris, to bring it back into current usage. Um, you know, if we all set out to use that as much as we can in conversation and social media over the next few weeks, we'll see if we can start a, a darkling revival. It doesn't sound like a good thing. But, you know, from a vocabulary standpoint, it is. Yeah, Matt, I agree. Darkled sounds like the opposite of twinkles. Yes, or sparkle, uh, as uh, as David Arbach says. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly, Chris. Hashtag Darkle. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll give it a whirl here. Um, okay. Uh, one of the most remarkable things that shows up here right away is her resentment. First in general, right? No heart of man is content Contentment is counterindicated for humans. Um, so are we happy here in Beleriand, where we live these long lives and in relative peace? No, we're not happy and content here. We still die, right? Notice how she characterizes their life in Beleriand. It's um, a little lifting of the shadow. They were in shadow, and the shadow is lifted just a little bit. Thanks for that. Yeah. I mean, okay. You know, we'll take it. But um, we don't live bright and happy lives. We live lives that are slightly less dark than they were before or they otherwise would have been. Um, notice also the word amendment. If the withering is less soon then that is some amendment. Ouch. She's been wronged? Men have been wronged? That they need amendment to be made to them? Um, I mean, it's not as strong a word as, like, restitution, right? But, you know, that's... Um, that's I mean, she might just mean change, right? Um, but, I, you know, that's... She sounds like she's, she has a grievance. And then, of course, in her second speech, it seems clear that she bears some grievance against the elves themselves. The shadow is now confined to the north, but once lay upon all Middle-earth, while ye dwelt in your bliss. Hope you guys enjoyed yourselves over there in Valinor. Meanwhile, we were suffering over here. We were abandoned to the shadow, we humans. Whoa. Okay. That shadow which is only slightly lifted from you. Yikes. Um, uh, 
I see, said Andreth, that in this ye of the high elves do not differ from your lesser kindred, whom we have met in the world, though they have never dwelt in the light. All ye elves seemed... Boy, and that phrase, all ye elves, right? That's a very Andreth phrase. All ye elves deem that we die swiftly by our true kind, that we are brittle and brief, and ye are strong and lasting. We may be children of Eru, as you say in your lore, but we are children to you also, to be loved a little maybe, and yet creatures of less worth, upon whom ye may look down from the height of your power and your knowledge with a smile or with pity or with a shaking of the heads. Alas, you speak near the truth, said Finrod, at least of many of my people, but not all, and certainly not of me. But consider this well, Andreth, when we name you children of Eru, we do not speak lightly, for that name we do not utter ever in jest or without full intent. When we speak so, we speak out of knowledge, not out of mere elvish lore, and we proclaim that ye are our kin, in a kinship far closer, both of Hroa and Fea, than that which binds together all other creatures in Arda, and ourselves to them. Um... Exactly, Brian. Andreth is particularly angry that Finrod assumes that men would be content with death simply because it's part of their nature. Right? And I remember reading the Athrobeth for the first time, and I remember the shock that I felt here um, because I didn't read it at the end of a long study of, you know, the laws and customs of the Eldar and stuff. I just read it. I just came to it. And uh, the flat contradiction of the Silmarillion, right? You know, I had so long accepted the idea that death was the gift of Iluvatar to men that, you know, my head was rocking back when I was reading Andreth's words here. This idea that you know, we should be content with our short lives. That is elvish ignorance, right? That is patronizing ignorance. You think that we should be content with that because you think we're lesser than you. You may look down from the height of your power and your knowledge and with a smile or with pity or with shaking of the heads, right? Um, we are brittle and brief, ye are strong and lasting, right? She even hears the title Children of Eru as patronizing, right? As patronizing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Thomas, um, great question. Um, he says, you know, aren't humans just getting to know elves for the first time? How does she claim to know so much about uh, the elves? Uh, because they had met many elves before. This is their first encounter with uh, the Calaquendi, right? But they knew Avari. They knew other elves 
before. That's why she says, uh, your lesser kindred, right? Ye of the high elves do not differ from your lesser kindred whom we have met in the world, though they, ne- they have never dwelt in the light. They have encountered many elves before. Humans have, like over generations, before they came to Beleriand. So they already knew about the elves, and apparently they've already had this encounter, right? They've already had this issue. Um, all ye elves, and by all ye elves, she means not only all ye Noldor, but all elves, Noldor and Avari alike, all of them make this assumption. Um, yeah, Josiah says, it makes that passage in the Silmarillion where, nen- where men are named the sickly a bit awkward. Yeah, doesn't it? Exactly. It sure does. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And Brian, I agree with you that in Finrod's defense, elves would naturally assume, from all they knew, uh, that everything in Arda is content in its nature. Animals also die, but don't seem discontented about it. Yeah, exactly. And that, of course, is just where um, Finrod is going to go, right? Other creatures also in Middle-earth we love in their measure and kind. The beasts and birds who are our friends, the trees, even the fair flowers that pass more swiftly than men. Their passing we regret but believe it to be part of their nature, as much as are their shapes or their hues. But for you, who are our nearest kin, our regret is far greater. Yet if we consider the briefness of life in all Middle-earth, must we not believe that your brevity is also part of your nature? Do not your own people believe this too? And yet from your words and their bitterness, I guess that you think that we err. I think that you err, and all who think likewise, said Andreth and that that error itself comes from the shadow. Ho, 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 okay. Remember what Finrod had just said? Remember, I mean, going back at, uh, uh, yeah, no, here. Um, yeah. Um, he says, um, remember when he says, when we speak, we speak out of knowledge, not out of mere elvish lore. Following that, he says, look, we know how things work. Not because we're smarter than you, not because we've figured it out, not because our lower master, our wise people are wiser than your wise people. We met the gods. They told us how things work, right? Like, we met Iluvatar's assistants, and they told us, they're the ones who built, you know, this planet and stuff, and they told us how things are. So, we're not guessing here. We speak out of knowledge. So, for him just to play that card, right? And then she comes around and says, you're wrong, and your error comes from the shadow. Oh, okay, yeah, no. You don't speak from knowledge. You don't know, right? You think you know. I mean, is she attacking the Valar? It seems almost like she is. Um... <laughs> you speak with the tongues of Melkor. Exactly. That's what she's accusing him of here. That's literally what she's accusing him of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, however, we should take note of Finrod's logic here, right? This makes perfect sense. 
mortality is not unknown, right? It's not like the elves look upon the death of Beor and are shocked in principle. What? Something died? It just randomly died? No, they're surrounded by this constantly. They're continuously aware of it, right? The plants grow and get old and wither, right? The animals die of old age, and like this happens all the time, right? They're constantly familiar with the fact that the beasts and birds and the trees and the fair flowers pass all the time, right? They regret their passing, but they believe it to be part of their nature. It's how things work in Arda. The briefness of life in all Middle-earth, right? It's the way things are. And men seem to be that way, too. So we have a context for that, right? That makes sense. It is still shocking. It's surprising. Because they recognize the men as their kin. Right? Beasts and birds might be their friends. Trees and flowers they might admire. But they're not kin. Right? He calls humans their nearest kin. I mean, they're both children of Iluvatar, as he already said, closer in both Hroa and Fea than anything else in the entire world. So that these two near kindred, this, the, the sundering of near kindred, well, that's a narrative that the elves are familiar with, right? But that they should be so different in their ultimate destinies seems very, very strange, right? Um, but again, they have a context. It's like, um, it's like the beasts and the plants, right? And since that seems to be part of the natural flow, like you don't see Yavana weeping over every plant that withers, right? Like when the cycle of the seasons turn, right? And like that seems to be part of Yavana's plan for them. It's not just a marring of Arda issue, right? Um, so that's okay. So this must be okay too. So we now are suddenly confronted with this idea, at least Andreth is confronting us rather harshly, uh, even bitterly, with the idea that this pleasant concept that human mortality that the fate that that death is a gift of Iluvatar to men is a product only of elvish ignorance it's not true it's not true at all it is not how uh, it is not how elves it, it is not how humans experience it's, it's, it's only an elvish theory okay I don't want to go too far. I wanted to get a little bit started, and this counts as a little bit started. We'll return to the Atherbeth next week. Not going to lie, we're going to be a couple weeks in the Atherbeth, no question. It's not that long, um, uh, but uh, I'm not going to go fast through the Atherbeth. This is really rich stuff, especially following up as it does very closely follow up the philosophical discussions we were looking at uh, in the laws and customs among the Eldar and then especially the Finway, the Finway and Muriel material. So we're going we're gonna to do, I hope, some fairly full justice to the Athrobeth. Tune in next time uh, when uh, uh, Andreth 
continues to just unload on Finrod here. Um, now, I um, I wanted to remind everybody I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going to be away with my family next week. Uh, so our next class won't be, unfortunately, for two weeks. Um, but I will be back. That'll be, what it'll be, the 26th of August will be our next session. Um, so... I will see you guys then. Of course, we have broadcasts for the rest of this week, some film tomorrow night, and uh, uh, Grifflet on Friday afternoon, and then I will be back. And yes, um, uh, hashtag Darkle, Christopher, let's see if we can do it. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, very good. And yeah, no, uh, Chris, no, ex no exploring the Lord of the Rings next week. I think I forgot to say that at the end of class last night. Um, but, um, but yep, yep, no... Um, no broadcasts at all next week. I'll be out of uh, range. I'll be in the backwoods uh, next uh, next week. So no broadcast. All right. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. I will see you guys uh, for another discussion in a fortnight. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.